I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello, everyone, and welcome along to this episode of La Liga Lowdown. I'm your host, Hugh McTeer, and this episode is also rebroadcast on Sirius XMFC 157. Of course, our main story in this episode is going to be El Clasico after Real Madrid won 3-1 away at Barcelona on Saturday afternoon. Fede Valverde and Ansu Fati traded goals in a wild opening 10 minutes before Sergio Ramos won, and won being the key word there, and converted the penalty in the second half before Luka Modric rounded off the 3-1 win for the champions. In every match they recap that we do, we bring you the best commentary clips from one of the weekend's games in our sore throat game of the week segment. And the game we're doing that with this week has to be El Clasico. It has to be. So to get this episode going, here's Matt Clark to bring you the sounds and shouts from this match. The first Clasico play without supporters was always going to be strange and missing that energy and passion of the fans. But this game at Camp Nou was not lacking in entertainment. Alfredo Martinez, the Onda Cero commentator, got very excited when Fede Valverde gave Real Madrid the early lead after just five minutes. The earliest Los Blancos goal in a Clasico at Camp Nou since Ruud van Nistelrooy back in 2007. <laughs> Liga Santander, la mejor liga del mundo. Y la mejor jugada del partido en una contra espectacular. Contra espectacular, as Benzema slipped Alverde in behind the defence and he finished with supreme confidence. Ansu Fati hit back rapidly for Barcelona, as Jordi Alba raced up the left wing before crossing for him to tap in. He was proclaimed as the youngest scorer in a Clasico, but there was much debate as to whether this was actually the case. It turns out that Fati missed the record by just three days. And that stays with Alfonso Navarro from 1947. Del Barcelona, Barcelona, This was the best Clásico possible, a sensational match, proclaimed the commentators. Pure passion, what a start to the game. Any pre-match narratives that this would be a bad Clasico were emphatically dispelled. Real Madrid were awarded a penalty midway through the second half after a VAR intervention. On La Liga TV, Simon Hanley described the action. Penalty, yep. 
to Messi's disgust as he turns away from the referee. The Madrid captain to put Madrid back in the lead, and he does it. Ramos, the man. Neto went the right way but couldn't get there. It's superbly taken. He didn't blast it this time. Took it low, as you suggested, and it's Barcelona 1, Real Madrid 2. Ramos. The Copa commentators discussed the VAR call on the penalty, the agarron, or the shirt grab, and noted the similarities between this incident and the one that Betis did not get last weekend against Real Sociedad. Bueno, el otro día le dijeron a un árbitro que mirara el agarrón y pitó falta del defensa, sí, sí. el al delantero. Es verdad. En el partido del, del en este Betis, caso, en este caso también puede ser real. In the final minutes of the game, Luka Modric sealed the three points with his second goal in as many matches, described by Ondacero as the cold-blooded Balkan, taking pleasure as he danced around Neto to caress the ball deliciously with the outside of his foot to wrap up the game. Le queda servida para Rodrigo, Rodrigo para los Modric. Modric que quiebra el arquero va a marcar. So after a tough week, Real Madrid recovered their smiles and moved to the top of the standings. They've still never lost three consecutive matches under Zinedine Zidane, and the French legend has now been to Camp Nou as an opposition coach six times and has not lost a single game. Magnifique. Yes, it was a truly magnificent afternoon if you're a Real Madrid fan. For Barcelona fans though, well, not so great. Not just because of losing this Clásico, but because it left a lot of doubts. Let's discuss the game then in detail with a Barcelona fan, with our regular Kool-Aid contributor Roman de Arquer. Just firstly, Roman, can you sum up your feelings as a Barcelona fan after this Clásico defeat? As you may imagine, I mean, my feelings are of disappointment because, of course, it's one of those games you never want to lose. I mean, it's a Barça-Madrid, it's a Clásico. Um, even if I know Barcelona might have a poor season because of what's been happening or whatever, I still want to win that game, you know. It's the maybe only consolation I might get in the whole season. And unfortunately, it wasn't the case. So, of course, I was very disappointed and also quite annoyed uh, with how the game went. Were you annoyed about the penalty given for a Clement Longley shirt tug on Ramos? It's the major talking point. We heard Matt explain earlier how the commentators were comparing it to other similar incidents. So let's get into it. What's your opinion on the call? When I first saw the situation, I really didn't think it was a penalty because we see how Ramos exaggeratedly throws himself to the floor. I don't think you can reward a player for doing that. Also, he actually falls to the opposite side in which Lenglet is pulling him, which makes no sense at all. And if you look closely, Lenglet lets go before the ball reaches Ramos' position. So I think he would have had time to actually header the ball towards goal. But of course, if you consider that grabbing a player in the box is a penalty, then you have to give it. But you have to be consistent in that decision. And we know that in so many games, uh, these grabs aren't given as a penalty, which makes me think that it comes down to interpretation. So in this case, I think interpretation would uh, let you consider that it wasn't a penalty. And I think there would have been less controversy if the penalty hadn't been given. Yeah, I think that's the issue, isn't it? It probably is a penalty, but we just never see them given, at least not usually. Besides the controversy, were Real Madrid the better team in this game, in your opinion? I think Barcelona did have some good uh, moments in the game, but overall I'd say Madrid were slightly superior. They got that quick goal despite conceding shortly after, and uh, they looked more dangerous in attack. Don't know if that was due to their merit or Barca's demerit in defense, because it has to be said that uh, Barcelona looked quite weak at the back. 
But in the important stage of the game, Madrid were the better side, especially towards the end where they got those two goals and they kind of managed to dry Barcelona out because uh, the Catalans weren't finding uh, spaces in attack towards the end and purely couldn't get any other goal uh, towards uh, the end of the game. There were some interesting tactical decisions in this game from both coaches. What stood out to you? As you may imagine, in that sense, I was looking a bit more into Barcelona. And I did see how Messi was coming down a lot to the midfield. Um, of course, that's something we've seen before uh, with Messi in the last uh, few years. But in this case, he was forming like a mid-three with Busquets and Frenkie, like very obvious in that uh, tactical lineup. And I'm not sure if that's the best option. Of course, I'm not a coach and I'm not who to tell Kuman what to do, but we all know that Messi is one of the best goal scorers in the history of football, so I kind of miss him being a bit closer to the box, um, despite not scoring in the last uh, few games. So I really don't know if that's going to be something we're going to see very, very often, Messi coming in so deep so often, or if it's just something he uh, planned out for this game against Real Madrid. So it'll be interesting to keep an eye out for that. Yeah, for sure. Also very interesting was that Griezmann was on the bench for this classical. Just how bad is the situation getting for him and the club? It's definitely a bad situation for him. I mean, he's not adapting to the team. Um, he's not performing as you'd expect. And then it's strange because he goes to France and he seems like a completely different player. So it's definitely not just tactical I think it's very psychological what Griezmann is going through and seeing that in the most or one of the most important games of the season you're not a starter and you're barely playing the last 10 minutes then it's not good for him and I don't know how it's going to work out hopefully Kuman can find a way to integrate him he can find his 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 comfort in this team but it's looking quite worrying for Griezmann at the moment you mentioned how Griezmann only played the last 10 minutes that's because Kuman didn't make any substitutions until minute 81 and then he made a triple change. What were your thoughts on that? Was that not a little strange? Absolutely. In that second half, you could tell that the team needed uh, a few refreshments, you know, because Busquets, you could see he was kind of tired. Pedri wasn't as incisive in that second half. And so uh, other players on Barcelona bench could make a difference. But uh, Kuman decided to wait and wait and wait. And for me, by then, it was it was too late. And this reminds me a bit of Kike Setien last season, who also was taking a long, long time to make changes. And I don't think fans were happy with that. So hopefully Kuman uh, will improve in that sense. Lastly, Roman, let's reflect on the lack of fans. How sad was it for you to see, you know, those helicopter images of a classical being played in an empty Camp Nou? It's definitely an image you don't want to see because um, it's not just a disappointment for the fans, but also for the players, you know, because uh, Classico is such an important game and you always want people cheering you in that situation uh, behind your back, giving you an extra push, that extra motivation. And I think that, for example, in the second half with that 1-1 draw, maybe Barca uh, would have done better if they had uh, the fans uh, supporting them all the way uh, to the end and maybe they would have gotten a better result because we all know that fans are decisive in home games but unfortunately that advantage is completely wiped out at the moment well thank you roman for coming on and discussing all of that never easy to look back on a classical when your team has lost so we appreciate that before we completely wrap up our classical breakdown i want to mention the weirdness that surrounded the post-match interview on movistar after each la liga match one player from each side speaks to the broadcaster right there pitch side and none of the veterans of 
the Barcelona team stepped forward, which left Summer signing and US national team player Sergio Dest to do it, but he doesn't speak Spanish, so credit to movie stars Ricardo Rossetti, one of the very best in the business for dealing with the situation and conducting the interview in English. Here's a clip from it. Your first Clásico. Yeah. And now, your sensations? It's my first Clásico. It's, it's a nice game to play, of course. And yeah, it's, so as I said, uh, I'm just too, it's just too bad um, that, that we lost the game against uh, Real Madrid. So that's what happened in El Clásico, but we have many other matches to discuss, of course. We're going to get into them in part two of this episode, coming up just after this short break. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello everyone and welcome back to this episode of La Liga Lowdown. We're recapping match day 7 and it was a match day that started on Friday. Yes, we had Friday night football for the first time this La Liga season and it was a regional derby as Elche defeated the big boys of the region Valencia 2-1. These two teams have had really contrasting starts to the season with Elche now on 10 points from 5 games and Valencia on 7 points from 7 games. To discuss both teams... Let's bring in our man in the Valencian community, Paco Pollitt. Before we get into Valencia, which we most certainly will, let's talk about Elche. How big a shock is their bright star? It's shocking for me for a number of things. First, they promoted on August 24th and they played their first game on September 26th. They had only 32 days to rest the players, send them on holidays, 
kickstart the preseason, sign a new manager, sign 14 new players and begin their journey in La Liga. You have to admit that the odds were stacked against them and that's why their current run of games is so impressive. Jorge Almiron and the squad are doing a heck of a job, both scoring but especially having an incredible defensive consistency. They are, in my view, hands down, the equipo revelación at this point in the competition. So Elche fans are obviously happy right now, but especially after this result, no, beating Valencia is a, a big deal for them. You see, there's always the ongoing beef between cities in the Valencian region, but the truth is that the rivalry between Elche and Valencia has kept a low profile in the last couple of decades because Elche struggled to keep playing top flight consistently. But yeah, Elche fans for sure enjoyed thoroughly Friday night after beating a bigger side when being the underdogs. Possibly the big deal comes from the fact that one month ago, almost everyone believed Elche were the proverbial dead meat of the league as they didn't have enough tools to fight toe-to-toe -to -toe with big sides. Or so it seemed, beating Valencia is possibly their biggest statement to date this season. The coach, Jorge Almiron, has a very unique tactical system compared to most La Liga clubs. Can you talk us through that? You know... We journalists had plenty of problems trying to correctly place the starting 11 on the lineup sheet as it first seemed Almiron would switch to a 4-4-2 formation, then it looked like a 5 at the back situation, but ultimately during the game we saw a 3 at the back tactic with two very wide open wingers who displayed an extreme physical sacrifice both attacking and defending. On practice, it worked beautifully for Elche in the first half. You only have to look at Josan Fernandez and Fidel, the players on the wing, being the ones who scored both goals for the team. Then Almiron's system could also be considered bulletproof because of how many men are piled up at the back. That's why Valencia, even if they had some clear chances, were unable to level the game after improving in the second half. Let's get into Valencia then. When some people said in pre-season that Valencia could get relegated, I thought that was an exaggeration, but they're slipping down the table. How worrying is it? Well, Ewan, you might remember that I actually was one of those people. I think it isn't a matter of if, it's a matter of when. If awful decision-making in Valencia is kept as a staple of their management, they could very well avoid relegation this season, but they will go down the next year or the next. It's a matter of time, when there's absolutely nobody steering the ship in the right direction. Against Elche, we saw their fourth defeat in seven games, being one of the worst teams defensively with 11 goals against, and with a few games ahead against Getafe, Madrid or Atleti before November ends. So thinking they can get dangerously comfortable in the bottom half of the table isn't really that far-stretched. You've explained here on this podcast that coach Javi Gracia wanted to leave but had to stay because otherwise he'd have had to pay around 3 million euros. But what impact has his threat to leave had on the squad? A huge impact, if you ask me. At the end of the day, the squad saw how their leader was betrayed by the board huge surprise here and even after asking him to stay because the players asked Javi Gracia to stay, Javi Gracia decided to leave. Everybody knows he 
right now is training Valencia against his will, as he would have to pay a 3 million cash penalty if he resigned. So it's at least understandable that they have lost a little bit of faith on their manager. Valencia did finish the Elche match strongly and actually had a good second half. Does that provide any cause for optimism? You see, if we really look closely, Valencia don't have such a bad lineup. The squad lacks deepness or real alternatives, but it's easily one of the best 10 teams of the league. But again, nothing is really normal around here. Um, before the game against Elche, more firings took place in the club, with long-time employees being sacked for no apparent reason, including the press officer for the last 16 years. The players do notice these details coming from the executives of the club. At the end of the day, even if the team tries to deliver good performances, there isn't a proper and healthy working environment surrounding them. And that makes the task incredibly difficult and also increases the chances of disaster at the end of the season. Thanks, Paco. Let's discuss some of the other most eye-catching results that we had this weekend. Real Sofidad have become the first team to retain their place at the top of the table this season. They came into this round leading the way and then won 4-1 at home to Huesca, even if it wasn't quite as easy as that scoreline suggests. That leaves Huesca still without a win, just like Real Valladolid. The Bucela hosted Alaves this weekend, so you thought they'd have a good chance to finally get that first win, but a red card shown to left-back Nacho in the 21st minute left him with an almost impossible task. It looked like Alaves might blow it with some poor finishing and just bad luck in front of goal, but eventually Thomas Pina and Borja Sainz got the goals to make it Real Valladolid 0, Alaves 2. It was also 2-0 when Atletico Madrid hosted Real Batiste as Marcos Juventi scored at the very beginning of the second half and as Luis Suarez scored right at the end of it in stoppage time. But Betis actually started the game really well. They dominated possession in the first half, but they eventually lost to mean that Diego Simeone's home record against Betis is now eight wins and one draw, zero defeats. He scored 18 goals and just one conceded in that time. So he clearly loves this fixture and, well, he is a former Sevilla man, I suppose. We also had the battle of the two yellow submarines this weekend as Cadiz hosted Villarreal. We don't often see Villarreal in their way kit because, well, yellow isn't exactly a, a common colour, but they had to look out the way kit for this match and, well, I still have a headache from it. There were no goals in this game, even if Alvaro Negredo did have one in the first half that was later ruled out for an offside in the build-up after a five-minute VAR review. But even with no goals, check out the highlights of this game just to see that weird, weird, weird Villarreal away shirt. Speaking of VAR, which, yes, it's come up quite a bit this episode, it's after furious after VAR intervened to award Granada a penalty in their meeting, one that was scored by Angel Montero for a 1-0 Granada win. It certainly didn't look like one to me, but at least gave us some drama and a talking point because this was an ugly match with 42 fills and 346 losses of possession between the two teams. Absolute madness. Now, let's have a talk with Gregor Chappelle, who joins me from Seville to talk about Sevilla. It's been a tough October for them as they haven't won any of their past four matches 
I mean, they've had a couple of commendable draws away at Barcelona and Chelsea, but they've lost to Granada and lost to Ibar by 1-0 scoreline. So, Gregor, is there concern creeping in? I'd say there is a little bit, actually. I mean, if the performances were a bit more encouraging, then maybe you wouldn't be so worried. But they haven't really been playing well at all. They've been a far cry from what they were like at the tail end of last season. I mean, we were talking about not so long ago the amazing unbeaten run they'd gone on and now things have just gone a little bit flat. I mean, we all know what the Sevilla fans are like as well and I think without them, they're struggling. I think if they had them in there against teams like Iba, they would have pushed them forward to get an equaliser or even maybe win the game. But, you know, you have to remember, teams have blips. It always happens. And they were without Fernando against Ibar and also Jules Koundé has been out for the last few games who has been massive for them, especially towards the tail end of last season and the start of this year, he was really good as well. I think when Koundé comes back in, things could pick up again because he was so important before he was rolled out with COVID. And I think this bad run coinciding with him dropping out really isn't a coincidence. In this game, Ibar had two total shots and scored one thanks to Kiki Garcia. Sevilla had 17 shots and didn't score. Is is that the weakness of this team, the lack of a, a clinical goal scorer? I said it all through last season and I'm saying it again now, a striker is the position that Sevilla really need to prioritise. I mean, they managed to get by last year when Luke de Jong was coming up with important goals left, right and centre in big matches in the Europa League for example and of course Ocampos pulled them over the line a lot of the time as well but you need someone who can score week in week out against the weaker teams and not just in the Europa League final because these are your bread and butter and I think Monchi's recruitment has been superb at Sevilla don't get me wrong since his return and the fact that he's done such a good job makes it even more puzzling for me as to why he's not managed to sign a proper striker. In the Serie hasn't convinced me either and I do really think that up top that is the kind of missing part of the puzzle for the Sevilla side. What about the squad depth in general? Are we seeing that maybe it's not as deep as we thought? I mean it is a bit alarming that the loss of Koundé seems to have made such a big difference. It seems to me that they're a little bit flat in my opinion they're missing players like Banega and Regulon who played such a big part in the system last year and who worked so well in Lopetegui's system Acuna for example isn't really the same kind of left back as Regulon who will bomb up and down the wing and get to the byline and Rakitic is just a different player to Eber Banega he's not really a really kind of like a deep lying playmaker that Banega was in Lopetegui's system I think the absence of those two this season, as well as the loss of Kunde, like I mentioned before, is maybe showing that this squad isn't actually as deep as we thought. You just have to hope that Lopetegui can find a way to adjust the system when players do drop out. Thanks, Gregor. Now we're going to finish this episode by wishing Osasuna a happy centenary. The club from Pamplona in the Navarre region of northern Spain were founded on October 24th, 1920 and... Exactly 100 years later, they played at home against Athletic Club and won 1-0 thanks to a Ruben Garcia penalty. Even without fans there, this was a huge occasion for the club and for the city. Honestly, it's been a very big deal there. So, to finish this episode, we're going to hear from football journalist and Osasuna fan Ignacy Tornay about what the centenary means and he has a mini-history lesson for us too. So, here's Ignacy on why this has been such a special weekend for Osasuna. 
Club Atlético Sasuna has celebrated its centenary year by beating Athletic Club at the Estadio El Sadar this weekend. So, first of all, for every single club to celebrate the 100th anniversary is one of the highest points of the history. For Osasuna is the perfect opportunity to remember the history of the club. Basically, the fans during the last years, they have been trying to recover the memory of the club, the origins, where the club comes from. So that struggle has been very difficult because we have to understand that the Navarre and Basque society after the Spanish Civil War, they were very punished by the fascist government on that time. So it was like uh, the history was forbidden, completely forbidden. So during the last years, as I was saying, there were different platforms, there were different groups of fans that they were trying to uh, recover the early memories of the club. So finally, the centenary year has been like the perfect occasion to to agree with the club and celebrate the origins. So many books have been published published by by different companies and the people are starting to and learning their the most basic and oldest story of Osasuna as a, as a club with those activities on social media you can really understand that the activism of the club is very very passionate and, 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 and active at the same time so that's the centenary year of Osasuna it's a pity that um, the club hasn't celebrated with the, with the fans in the news El Sadar the stadium in such a big occasion like uh, against Athletic Club um, in my opinion that I'm living in, in Pamplona for me Osasuna a part of passion and, and, and heart um, I think it's like an, an attitude by the people from Navarra that they feel really identified with the team it's like part of their daily life in terms that um, um, the happiness by supporting a team that never won anything is uh, it's higher than um, than just winning a trophy you are an Osasuna fan and this is what all matters Zorionak Osasuna yes Zorionak indeed that's the Basque word for congratulations that does bring us to the end of this episode although there's still one more fixture from match day 7 that will take place on Monday night between Relegation zone sides Levante and Celta Vigo. We can't cover that here as we haven't quite mastered time travel yet and we do always want to bring you the podcast first thing on a Monday but be sure to follow La Liga Lowdown on Twitter where we'll be covering that Monday night game as it happens. For now, my thanks go to Ignacy Tornay for his Osasuna insight and also to Matt Clark, Roman de Arcair, Paco Pollitt and Gregor Chappell for their contributions. I've been your host, Drew McTeer, and we'll be back at the same time next week. Until then, have a good week and thanks for listening. Hold up. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 